with support from the Climate Cake Alumni Association. Welcome to The Elephant. For the very first time in the history of Homo sapiens, we are asking people of different cultures in different continents to agree. Climate change is a fact. All the evidence suggests climate change is The coastline of South Florida is going to be pushed considerably inland. Our politics. Extreme events will be the new normal. About global change. Climate change. Climate change. Climate change is to blame. No one is addressing it. Time for talking is gone. We need It is the elephant in the room that we don't want to talk about. Hello, and welcome to The Elephant. I'm Kevin Canners. We'll take a listen to this. Concern about air quality usually centers on pollution, as in the ironic observation, if you can't see it, don't breathe it. Increased reliance on coal is a crucial part of the Carter administration energy program. But the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee heard warnings today that a coal-burning society may be making things hot for itself. Nelson Benton reports. The so-called greenhouse effect is created by carbon dioxide, a colorless, odorless gas. The relatively small amounts of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere filter the warming rays of the sun to the Earth's surface. But like a greenhouse, carbon dioxide also prevents heat given off by the Earth from escaping into space. Researchers say increasingly large amounts of CO2 are accumulating in the atmosphere. They fear the Earth will gradually become warmer, causing possibly disruptive changes in the Earth's climate. Scientists and a few politicians are beginning to worry that global energy planning does not take the greenhouse effect seriously enough. If the Earth gets too warm, for example, ice caps could melt, raising the level of the seas. Possible, probable, we really don't know. But if it happens, it means goodbye Miami, goodbye New Orleans, goodbye Charleston, Savannah, and Norfolk. One scientist put the urgency of the greenhouse potential in biblical terms, citing the warning given to Noah in the Old Testament. Noah knew trouble was coming, he said, and he prepared for it. Nelson Benton, CBS News, Capitol Hill. That's a CBS segment from 1980 about what was then the relatively new idea that humans were changing the Earth's atmosphere through the mass burning of fossil fuels. And I play that clip because in this episode, we're taking a look at some of the questions of how the story of climate change has been told by the media. Now, in some ways, talking about how the media has covered climate change might seem besides the point. After all, it's not about CO2 emissions, policy, or changes on the ground. It's merely the story we're telling ourselves about the issue. And yet, one could argue that that's actually the most critical thing. After all, the story we tell ourselves about any problem is central to how we'll respond to it. I mean, to solve any problem, first we have to tell ourselves a story about it that says that A, there is a problem, and that B, there's something we can actually do about it. Well, to talk about some of the challenges of covering climate change in the press, later in this episode, we'll be speaking with two prominent figures within the media world, Ira Glass, the creator and host of the public radio program, This American Life, and Alan Rusbridger, recently retired editor of the Guardian newspaper. But first, I'm joined by Max Boykoff, Associate Professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Professor Boykoff has dedicated much of his academic work to analyzing media coverage of climate change and how that in turn impacts how we see and understand the issue. He's written several books on the topic and helps run an ongoing project that tracks the worldwide monthly coverage of climate change. I started by asking Max Boykoff why he himself sees media coverage of climate change as being so central to the issue. 
you know, really not many people wake up and start their days with the latest peer-reviewed publication over a cup of coffee or tea. Most people are accessing information about these very important and vital issues around climate science through radio programming, through watching television, picking up a newspaper, surfing the internet, and so on. And so media has, has proven itself to be a key source of knowing about these issues. Mass media become powerful agents framing and shaping this information. How mass media cover these issues then is very important to understanding how there are certain attitudes, intentions, beliefs, perspectives, behaviors within segments of the general public. You know, I, th I think we uh, normally think of climate change as, as being a, a relatively new thing. Of course, the, the processes that, that started it uh, go back to the Industrial Revolution, but but by and large, the sense of it in, in the wider public seems to be seems to be relatively new. But when when did the media first start covering climate change? Is there a a date or a time when articles first started appearing in the press? The, actually, there was sporadic coverage of climate change, maybe not calling it as such, you know, over a hundred years ago. But it, really, when this came on into discussions as called climate change really was in the 70s into the 80s. But it exploded onto the scene, really a great deal of burgeoning coverage in the mid-80s to the late 1980s. Good evening. Tonight on the Journal, a full edition devoted to the greenhouse effect, a phenomenon which will eventually cause the greatest global climatic change since prehistoric times. And there were a set of key events that, that have shown that 1988 was really a watershed period for that. Um, for one thing, there was the formation of the UN body, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 1988. A new global body to tackle global warming, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC. Also in 1988, there was an important meeting that took place in Canada where there were a number of nations, 46 nations, that called for 20% cuts by 2005, which seemed like a very distant date at that time. A meeting of climate scientists in Toronto called for 20% cuts in global CO2 emissions by the year. And then in the political realm, uh, Margaret Thatcher, perhaps part as, as part of her campaign to break up the coal unions, had actually spoken out in the late 1980s to the Royal Society of London talking about this great human experiment and talking about the need to address climate change. Next month, I shall be going to the United Nations to set out our view on how the world should tackle climate change. Britain has taken the lead internationally, and we shall And then over in the United States, uh, where I sit now, James Hansen, NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies then director, had spoken out on the floor of the U.S. Senate during a hearing that was organized, chaired by Al Gore, talking about the importance of addressing this climate challenge so that the time is over to be waffling on these issues. The time is now to take action. This was in 1988. Altogether, this evidence represents a very strong case, in my opinion, that the greenhouse effect has been detected and it is changing our climate now. I think most centrally during this period of time, though, there was widespread heat wave and drought going across Canada and the United States, and a set of accompanying wildfires that took place during that time as well. Forecasters are predicting no relief from the haze or the heat this weekend as temperatures will graze the 100 mark again but tomorrow. Altogether, these events stretching across political, scientific, cultural, ecological arenas 
had then sensitized the general public and had garnered a great deal of media coverage. If one was to go back and read these articles, is there anything that that stands out now uh, about reading them, at least when, when you've gone back to, to look at them? They're fascinating. I think, you know, one of my personal interests is understanding how uh, history shapes the present and shapes future possibilities. So I, I read through them fascinated by what were some of the uh, contours of discussion during that time. Uh, you know, as this came onto the scene, one of the dimensions that I think about here is that the left-right politics in terms of, you know, it's important to understand both what's present in these news accounts and then also what's absent. What was absent in this case was really what had emerged since since that period of time as a political polarization around this issue. There was really an absence of left-right disagreement that mapped onto this climate change issue. By that, I mean George H.W. Bush was talking about fighting the greenhouse effect with the White House effect in 1988. We all know that human activities are changing the atmosphere in unexpected and in unprecedented And there was a great deal of support for taking action on this issue in the late 1980s into, I suppose, 1990. And as we've examined news accounts since that period of time, that political polarization has come to the fore and has really become much more entrenched. Polls show a majority of Americans believe climate change is real. But top Republicans, including Texas Senator Ted Cruz, former Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and Florida Senator Marco Rubio, say they have their doubts. Humans are not responsible for climate change in the way some of these people out there are trying to make us believe. To win over skeptics, President Obama... So that's a bit of the early history of climate change coverage in the media. And we'll be coming back to Max Boykoff later in this episode. But now I want to turn to one of the things that's often been remarked on about climate change. That even with the best of intentions it's a difficult story to tell, and that it's hard to turn the climate change topic into a captivating news piece that people will actually want to engage with. And after looking through some of the first press reports on climate change, as I have for this episode, it's really no wonder it's been a challenge. Because what's remarkable in looking back on this early coverage is how stubbornly consistent both the reality on the ground and the stories we tell ourselves about climate change have remained over the years. We are burning fossil fuels and emitting CO2, Scientists say it's a problem and leading to warming. Consequences are likely dire, and politicians at home and abroad are talking, but by and large not taking sufficient action. So no wonder every new piece of news on climate change has tended to give us the sense, haven't we heard this before? Well, joining me to talk about this challenge of making climate change actually engaging news is acclaimed radio producer Ira Glass, who by many is considered one of the most skilled storytellers in America. The public radio program he founded and hosts, This American Life, is one of the vanguard journalistic programs in the U.S. today. Episodes the program has produced, such as Harper High School, which dealt with school gun violence in Chicago, and The Giant Pool of Money, which took listeners inside the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis, have won accolades for both being compelling and shedding light on critical topics. So when I came across a video online where Ira himself hinted that he found climate change a difficult story to cover, Naturally, I was curious. I saw this video with you uh, online where you gave a, a speech. Um, it was at a Solve for X, I, I think it was called. And yeah. you, you were talking about climate change. And I found it really interesting um, because it almost goes against what a lot of the stuff you say say normally. Um, it, to paraphrase, you, you, you basically said uh, at one point with climate it's like, change, it's, it's like, like a meteor. meteor that is spinning towards the earth 
and it'll be here by the time our kids are grown. But on and, most days, what are we doing or what am I doing? Like me, most days, like, like nothing. nothing. Okay, nothing. You know, yeah. and you go on to say like as a, as a journalist, as a reporter. It feels like any minute that I'm not talking about climate change, it's like I'm turning my back on the most important thing that is happening to all of us. And, and I wonder if somewhere in the back of your heads, you have this too. So is that true? Like, is it something you think about most days or like in the back of your mind? Is, is it something that's there? I go through phases of that, sure. Yeah, like right now I'm a little busy like on other projects. And so that thought hasn't had a second to intrude. But, um, but in general, yeah. Yeah, I feel like, um, like we're missing the biggest story there is. <clears throat> and I've talked to other people who report on climate change about this and people who report on it sort of famously. And they say it's weirdly resistant to journalism as a story um, because there isn't something you can do. As a as like a person, like if you change your light bulbs, it's not gonna stop it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> to like the better light bulbs, you're, you're like you're not gonna. It's still gonna happen. Which makes it so terrifying because it's not just yeah, it's not just one person. It's like massive social change, like yes. everything, like the way we run our economy needs to change, the way we structure our cities needs to change, mm -hmm. the way we make food, the way, just like everything about our entire culture, and um and uh, yeah, it's a real problem, and it's coming really soon too. Like and and now we're at the point where like. You know, the UN just came out with this report a couple of weeks ago, which is like, oh, by the way, like not only is it happening, but uh, there are going to be wars and food shortages. People are going to die. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah OK. <laughs> just like and it's not like 100 years from now. It's like, you know, when your kids are your age, basically, that's what it is. So, you know, when your kids hit 40, basically, that's that's when we're talking about. It's super soon and uh, where some of it starts to happen. And so. Yeah, it's a it's a puzzle. I feel like I haven't I haven't given the right amount of time to to figure out how to do or if you can do something in this job. Well, one of the things that struck me is uh, it seems so impossible because what you often say is a we're out for for fun and we're not ashamed to be out for fun. You know, we're trying to tell stories that amuse ourselves. And yes. you know, if you if you don't do that then the audience won't be amused either. It won't be entertaining. So that's one problem. But the second part is climate change isn't surprising, at least not at the macro level. Well, that, that is the problem. Like, that's the problem with doing it as a story is that everybody knows where they stand. Yeah, it's like, yes, we know and we're so, screwed. And there's... Like, I don't need the exact details on the level of screwedness. Like, I got it. Like, you don't have to... Like, you, you had me. At the, you know, like, like, you used to say at the beginning of the hour or at the beginning of the story, like, okay, it's going to be about climate change. If you're like, I know. I know how I stand. Like, I know the story. Like, I know, I know what's going to happen. In general, like I might not know the details that this particular story is going to tell me, and so and so whenever we take it on, we try to like find some new corner of it that nobody's written about and some new way to think about it. But um, but honestly, like the brute force fact of it, you know, the crude fact of how doomed we are, um, it's hard to keep repeating that and have it have any feeling. And hard to keep thinking that, too. Yeah. It struck me because, you know, uh, as someone who, myself, who's starting out and you have all these ambitions, basically, it seems so strange. Like, you know, it, it, it really seems like it trumps everything else. You know, like, why commit yourself to other things? It's just a, such a, a strange problem. And I think you you articulated something that I imagine a lot of people are, are thinking. But on the other hand, I think that maybe... Um if somebody's really committed to dealing with climate change, what they shouldn't be is a radio producer. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think, like, I don't think that, though, 
I like I don't know. Like I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not sure what there is for us to do because people who know that it's out there, like the the word is out. Like it's like it's, you know what I mean. Like it's widely known. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've thought about doing more uh, about it or more reporting about it. it? It sounds like I've thought about more reporting, and every now and then I'll look into a story. Um, but but it's uh it it hasn't gone very well. Um, because of those those same problems with the yeah, it's yeah. hard to find a story. It's hard to, it's hard hard to, to find a story that I think is worth people listening to. That was Ira Glass, the host of This American Life. So if one of the most skilled journalistic storytellers agrees, I think it's safe to say that reporting on climate change in an engaging way can present some difficulties. But those challenges haven't stopped at least one media organization from stepping to the plate and devoting huge resources to what they call the biggest story in the world. The Guardian newspaper under outgoing editor Alan Rusbridger earlier this year decided to launch a full-fledged campaign tackling climate change. The campaign has two key aspects. Number one, increasing coverage and putting climate change stories front and center in The Guardian's reporting. And two, a spirited and very public effort to try to convince two of the world's largest charitable organizations, the Wellcome Trust and the Gates Foundation, to divest their fossil fuel holdings. The campaign and its debut was hard for Guardian readers to miss. It featured a full-screen splash graphic of oil streaking down the page that greeted visitors to its website. Daily front-page stories on climate change in the print edition included a popular podcast that gave the inside story on The Guardian's ongoing efforts. Before he stepped down in June, I had the chance to speak with Alan Rusbridger about the nature of the campaign, what journalism's obligations are to such a pressing issue, and how the nature of the climate change story has evolved. But first, we touched on how it all began. Could you just introduce yourself? I'll be speaking about this volume. My name is Alan Rusbridger, and I'm the editor of The Guardian for a bit longer. For how many more days? For two more weeks. Now, I want to get into a, a wider conversation about what The Guardian is doing with putting uh, climate change front and central and what you see as some of the issues or maybe pitfalls of covering climate change in the media. But first, I, I wanted to get the story of how this came about. I understand a big spark for it was uh, a lunch you had with Bill McKibben, the, the founder of 350.org and environmental activist. Uh, c- could you take me to that lunch? Uh, what was the scene and, and what was the conversation? Well, we were both recipients of a, a rather wonderful award called the Right Livelihood Award in Stockholm. And the organizers of this award, um, they don't like the people just to come in and pick up the gong and fly off. They like to put them together and um, see what connections are made. So we, we spent a couple of days in each other's company. And one day I found myself sitting next door to Bill who I hadn't met before. I was familiar with his work a a bit. And we ended up talking about climate change. And I was asking about, you know, what journalism could do better. And he said, well, the thing is, the mistake that I think newspapers are making, media organizations generally, is to cover it through environment correspondence. And they've done a great job. But the story has now moved beyond the environment. It's now about the politics. It's about the economics. Uh, and I think you ought to wake up and change the nature of the way that you're covering. So that was a very Im- important conversation that I sort of squirreled away in the back of my mind. And what did he mean by that? So instead of it being about the environment, it being more about power, what, did, what does that actually mean? Well, I think he meant that except to the, the fringes of the deniers and skeptics, the science is settled. Um, we, we know 
the dangers of uh, climate change. We know roughly how many degrees um, can be tolerated and the consequences of, of breaking through those targets. Uh, we know it's man-made, etc., etc., etc. So you know, all those things that environmental correspondents used to write about, we can take as a given. But how to solve it is not going to be the environmental correspondents. That's going to be people who understand different kinds of power, economic, chiefly economic and political power. You said that it's not like you weren't proud of the environmental coverage that The Guardian had done. You, you had devoted quite a number of people and resources to the environment over the years. But you felt like you had never actually broken through. You had never actually been able to convey sort of the urgency of the issue. Why do you think that's the case? Why wasn't that able to come through? Well, I think there is a no, not a problem with journalism. It's just what journalism is. Journalism describes things that have happened. Uh, and, you know, if somebody shoots somebody or a bomb goes off or uh, somebody falls over in the street, that's a relatively simple thing for journalism to handle. You can photograph it, you can describe it. Uh, if you're saying these are things that could happen in 20 years' time if we don't do things today, that's much harder. Uh, especially if you've got people standing on the other side of the street saying, well, I don't agree, I don't think those things will happen. And so you get into an argument about whether these things are likely to happen or not. Uh, but it's all in the future. Meanwhile, things are changing not every day. Um, you, you, you know, The iceberg will look the same today as it looked yesterday. So it's very incremental changes that are happening. And journalism is about the novel um, and I think there's also something about the readers. We can't let the readers off. I think, you know, the readers find this a difficult subject. It's very threatening. It's very frightening. It feels like there's nothing they can do about it. And so this story, which to my mind is the most important story of our lives, um, and which on any rational basis should be on the front page every day, almost never is. And so that's, that's the problem. And this happened to coincide with your decision to step down after 20 years as the, the editor. And so can you tell me about, after meeting with, with Bill McKibben, what you were left thinking about? Was it a, a decision right away that you wanted to do something more, that you wanted to devote this time? Well, it, it, it was over Christmas, so, you know, a, a time of reflection. It was, you know, the first time I escaped the office and was sitting in an armchair by a log fire with a glass of wine and that's a good time to start thinking and I was thinking you know what's next year going to bring six months time I won't be editor any longer what what if anything will I regret and I thought well there is this nagging thing in the back of my mind that that we haven't really managed to make people sit up and notice this subject in the way that I think they should be and if they're not, then politicians are not going to feel the breath of public opinion on their necks. And so what, what could I do in, in six months that, that would dramatize and energize uh, our, our coverage? Uh, and that's how this began. It began with an email from me to my colleagues on Christmas Eve, which um, no colleague wants to receive an email from their editor on Christmas Eve. Um, but it did kickstart a conversation internally, which led to the campaign that we're now in the middle of. So that's the, that's the basis of the campaign, that you need to get out. If you're invested in this stuff, you should disinvest, divest. Uh, and that is a, a, an argument that is now beginning to rage around the world. 
I, I think one of the, the strengths of, of that position and the strength of leaving in the ground is it, it gives that focus that otherwise the coverage before was was lacking, where all you'd hear about is melting ice sheets or another record season of, of temperatures and yet feel basically uh, neutered against it. You can't, you had no power. Uh, can you talk about how important it was to to narrow the focus in, as part of this coverage? Yeah, well, I think that's right. I, I think people do. I mean, I, that, you know, there's psychologists have written um, you know, entire bookshelves of books now about why people find this so difficult to think about and whether it's too frightening or whether it's a, a lack of power or lack of agency so that, that you can't do anything yourselves. Um, so one of the things we wanted to do was to just narrow the focus into something that was about one thing. And every time in a discussion with colleagues when they tried to say, well, don't you think we ought to have a view about this or about that or, you know, we should be doing... I kept on saying, no, we, that's what you're talking about is environment coverage. You know, we do that every other week of the year. This is just about one thing. And we're going to just pursue this remorselessly until we've really pursued it to the, the end that we can. And I, I think we've stuck to that. I think you know, we're, we're being very, very focused on this one thing. And it, you know, people, people have woken up. It, you know, people have noticed it. And it's had, I mean, more... I mean, there's you know, big stories we've done in the past few years, like Snowden and phone hacking. This is up there with them in terms of people around the world sitting up and noticing that here is a, you know, a, a newspaper doing something very unusual and important. And for you, is that was the importance in that to escape that sense of fatalism that had otherwise dominated the topic? Yeah, well, it's re- <laughs> it is interesting watching the reaction. So, um, you know, lots of cross articles in other papers saying, "Oh, you sh- this is one today in the Times. You know, you, this is the wrong campaign, or it's the the, the wrong target, or um, this won't have any effect." And I feel like saying to them, "Well, you come on then. You know." Um, that's fine. What, what, what have you done in the last 40 years? You know, there are some journalists I know who have, you know, about my age who have been in journalism for 35, 40 years. You know, um, you don't like our campaign? Great. You know, what, what are you going to tell your grandchildren about what you did uh, about this issue? Or don't you think it's that important? Um, you know, because I think what we're, we're throwing a challenge at the rest of journalism. You know, if you, you don't like our campaign, that's fine. Um, what actually are you doing? Or don't you think this is a a vital issue. Um, if not, why not? Those, those are the challenges I would like to throw back at people who who uh, disagree with what we're doing. I think as as journalists, this is not just the Guardian, as journalists generally, we need to think about our duty, our responsibilities in this area. And uh, you know, if our role is to inform readers so that they can plan their own lives and, and have more effect on the political system, then we're not necessarily succeeding. One of the main issues or main criticisms that would be leveled uh, at this sort of coverage and at this, uh, this campaign you're doing is that, you know, it's not objective journalism. And I, I think this is a particularly strong idea in, in North America. Uh, but I was curious about your views on that. Is, do you think objective journalism is, is A, possible or if it is B, desirable? Mm-hmm. Well, let, let, let's suppose the scientists are right. Um, let, let's suppose that we're heading for a... Uh, if, if we don't act, then we're heading for something like a catastrophe for, for life as we know it. Um, why would you be objective about that? 
if if um, the overwhelming body of scientific opinion believed that that was likely to happen, why, why, you know, why, why would you want to remain calm in those circumstances? And uh, you know, I can see that you know, been in journalism for a long time. It's uh, and I understand about the arguments about objectivity and impartiality and fairness and accuracy and all that. So I don't need lectures from people uh, about that. But what, but what is objective journalism doing in this area? And, and w well, what is objective journalism? Um, I mean, you, you you do hear on some broadcasters the need to you know balance somebody who believes in climate change with somebody who doesn't believe in climate change. Is that objective? When when the um, scientific opinion is so overwhelmingly balanced towards one side of the argument. So I think these are these are complex decisions, and again, you could spend all your life talking about them and worry about whether this is a good thing to do or a bad thing to do. But all the time that you're worrying about that, and not doing it, then you know we're one week closer to the Paris talks, one week closer to things not happening, uh, and I don't think it's a bad thing for one newspaper to um, break free of that and introduce a little urgency into the subject. Have you noticed any any differences in the media coverage or either in towards climate change or towards the campaign itself by The Guardian that's surprised you or, or that you could uh, characterize? Well, I'd, I'd, I mean, in, in this country, I thought there would be more hostility, um, but there hasn't been. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's because of actually self-reflection, people thinking, well, it, it'd be easy to knock the guard in, but, but actually, what are we doing? Because I think actually a lot of journalists do feel uh, uneasy about this, you know, because journalists are human beings. We've all got our own lives. Um, uneasy about climate change, you mean? Well, I think, no, I think they feel uneasy about what they're doing. You know, I mean, if you've got young friends, young relatives, you've got children, you've got grandchildren, you've got godchildren, uh, you know, we're all in touch with future, future generations, and I think you you have to be quite an odd person not to not to think about what might be happening and 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 whether you're doing all the things that you could do personally to um, to have some kind of effect. So I, I think I think that may be one reason why why. Actually, we haven't been criticised in the way that I thought we might be. I mean, around the rest of the world, there's just been interest. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, I've done lots, lots of interviews in in the US where this question of objectivity has come up, but but not not in a hostile way. I mean, you know, people are genuinely interested, uh, and I think it's making American editors reflect on whether the tried and tested J School tenets of what journalism is um, are the only whether that is the only way to do journalism and I, I, I think it has made people reflect about what journalism's duty is and um, you know I'm, I'm sure lots of people were, were thinking of quite um, conventional coverage in the run-up to Paris in, in December who are now thinking well now they're more interesting and innovative and impactful ways of doing the subject you mentioned you've done uh, many, many interviews, and I was wondering what, what it's been like for you to be the the face of this this campaign. In one of the podcasts, uh, it comes across that you're you're quite uh, reticent to <laughs> to uh, put yourself as the sort of the de facto spokesperson for this. Uh, what has that been like? Well, I, um, 
I'm a slightly reticent person uh, anyway, so I, I, I didn't want to... I didn't want the story to be about... Well, I certainly didn't want the story about, to be about me. Um, and I, 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 didn't, I only wanted the story to be about The Guardian to the extent that it would provoke discussion. And, um, you know, because it, it would be better if people discussed the issue itself. Um, but, I, that, but I think that the story of how journalism is or isn't doing with this subject is an interesting and important one. And and provides a lens or a route into the subject itself. So I'm, I, I don't mind doing it as long as it, it causes people to reflect on the on the subject itself. Um, I mean, at, at some point, humankind will wake up to the to the unanswerable connection between climate events and the thing that science is describing, and put these two things together. Now, whether that happens too late or whether it happens while we're still in a position to to do something about it is is the question on which humanity is going to hinge and that's a sort of very profound behavioral psychological political question um, that it's difficult to anticipate how as a species we're going to negotiate that one of the interesting things about the guardian is is it's a nonprofit. it's run by a trust and the guardian media group i think there's a, an endowment of, of something like 600 million is that right yeah we need ne- nearly a, a billion pounds now yeah. a billion pounds okay um i was wondering what role or to or to what degree that matters uh the guardian's sort of financial structure in being able to tackle such a subject and if you think that a for-profit newspaper, such as the New York Times, or basically most of the media, if they would have the same freedom uh, going after something that you know would upset powerful interests? Well, there's probably two answers to that. I mean, there would be nothing stopping Rupert Murdoch or the New York Times doing this. You know, they're, they're much wealthier than we are. Um, you know, we, we've got money in the bank, but we're not a, a big player. We're not a Time Warner or an AOL or a NBC or a CNN, you know, any, any of these companies could do, could afford to do it if they wanted to. Um, we've just chosen to do it, uh, but it's it is obviously easier to make those decisions if you haven't got shareholders breathing down your neck or, or um, you know consultants coming in telling you how to run a lean business efficiently, which has happened to a lot of newspapers generally, not to great effect. Uh, and I'm sure any management consultant coming into the Guardian could run their slide rule over what we're doing and say, I don't understand why you've got 10 people doing this. You know, where's the revenue? Um, it's not going to make shareholders happy necessarily yeah, to uh, um, <laughs> put climate change front and center. It's just cost. Um, and I can, I can easily imagine the consultant that would come in and look at the traffic um, and the readership and say... This, this doesn't make sense, and that would be their judgment. But the most successful newspapers are generally not run by accountants. They're run by editors who make moral and editorial choices about what's important and about the resources that should go into them, which would seem inexplicable to many accountants. Mm-hmm. And we're blessed at having the Scott Trust, which allows the editor the freedom to make those kinds of choices within reason. And uh, so it's, it's probably true that it's more likely that a paper like The Guardian is going to do this than, than some other papers one not mentioned. 
And finally, what would you say the media's role in climate change and maybe more broadly is? Uh, do you see it as as a, a force for change? Do you almost see it as uh, irresponsible for journalists who cover the environment not to um, make it more of a of a campaigning issue? Well, think about think about how big the story is, and you know, if you're an editor or a or a news editor, read up some of the science, um, re- read up some of these IPCC reports. I mean, just try and try and educate yourself about why it is that so many scientists believe the same thing, and then consider the nature of the threat. But you know, when when has there ever been a situation where, as journalists, you're writing about such a mass threat to millions, maybe billions of people on the planet within the lifetime of, of people who are now born. I mean, that, that seems to me a colossal story. And if we as journalists haven't got the imagination to work out how to cover that and deal with it, then there's something failing in journalism. And I think we ought to sit and reflect on what that is and what our responsibilities are. Well, Alan Rusbridger, thanks so much for the work that The Guardian is doing on this issue, and and thanks for joining me today. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this um, talk. It's made me think. That was Alan Rusbridger, former editor of The Guardian, speaking with me just a few days before he stepped down in June. Although the trusts haven't yet divested, The Guardian's campaign is ongoing under the new editor, Catherine Viner, and the paper is continuing to put a spotlight on climate change stories. Now, The Guardian's an outlet that's devoting itself to the issue of climate change with refreshing principle, but it's just one media organization out of many in a diverse landscape. And unfortunately, most outlets don't treat climate change with either the same sort of care or resources. In fact, even in those relatively positive cases where newspapers and nightly news shows actually report on climate change regularly, the picture they paint can be quite distorted, whether through giving contrarian views undue weight framing global warming in ways that make it seem either uncertain or too costly to act on, or failing to give many stories or positions proper context. These are facets of climate change coverage that Professor Max Boykoff, who we heard from at the beginning of the episode, has studied extensively. One of his main interests is looking at how climate stories in the press are framed and how that impacts public perception. For example, do news accounts focus on the cost of taking action on climate change, say by speaking of the cost that would be borne by some industries if we were to put a price on carbon? Or do they put emphasis on the opportunities in things like new jobs and clean energy that would result from acting? Max Boykoff told me of one recent study he co-authored that took a look at these issues by looking at how broadcast and print media frame climate change through their coverage of the fifth United Nations IPCC assessment report. So the ways in which these were framed in the U.S. press that we took a look at, broadcast and print coverage, there wasn't any positive framing on the benefits of action. Uh, rather, there was a focus on the, the negative implications of actions on climate change economically. So, so what does that mean exactly? Like they it would only talk about it in terms of uh, perhaps the economic damage that it would take to do something on climate change instead of what the risks to the general public would be from uh, not doing anything against climate change? That's right. So at the center of a lot of this is is a lot of doom and gloom. There's a lot of negative implications. There's a lot of threat. And there are a lot of costs that are involved. So reporting on that, as an individual journalist, 
can make sense, but as it scales up, these patterns then persist to provide the public with just a partial understanding of these issues. And we're not telling journalists, you know, just look at the silver lining and report on that. I think that would be a grossly oversimplifying the complexity and the challenges uh, of covering these issues. But what we are saying is to reflect back on how individual decisions that are made on any given story to meet any given deadline then can scale up to these patterns of coverage of climate change over time, what kinds of effects that then has on public discourse. I I saw somewhere when I was researching your work, uh, I forget exactly where, but it said that fear-based reporting on climate change, something that that gets people really worried, uh, is effective in in raising awareness about the the issue, about, about the seriousness of climate change, but at the same time, it actually makes people feel defeated. It makes them less likely to get engaged. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. I mean, that actually refers to some other work that I had done looking at how imagery can raise awareness and can affect levels of engagement as well. So these these are images we would actually see like on the broadcast news or in the newspaper? That's right. So what we had done actually at that time for that study is extract real images that appeared in top newspapers in the US, UK, and Australia during a set period of time and just extracted those images and then used them in a particular methodology working with groups in each of the countries to understand what resonated with them. So what we had found is that, you know, while there is this awareness raising that can be associated with big uh, disaster events or big weather events, that that can also be quite defeating in terms of feeling as though there is something that folks think they can do about the issue. In contrast, renewables uh, may not be arresting and particularly awareness raising, uh, but they also, when seeing images of renewable technologies, solar panels, wind farms, and the like, that that was a way in which people had expressed that they felt they had a place in these big issues, that there was something that they could do about it. So you mean if you, you just show the doom and gloom, then then people feel less less capable of, of doing anything? That's exactly right. That's right. There's also a huge range in how different types of outlets cover the problem. For several years, Max Boykoff was based at Oxford University. And while in Britain, he studied the differences between how the tabloid press covered the issue of climate change and what's called the quality press, papers like The Guardian or The Independent. There was a very fascinating difference that while the UK quality press had largely acknowledged that humans contribute to climate change, that some form of action was needed, that the UK tabloid press was painting a very different picture, calling these sorts of things into question. And those who read the tabloid papers are largely working class folks within the UK. And, and one can argue, oftentimes, those who are at the forefront of climate impacts of various sorts. Living over there in the UK and interviewing some of these UK journalists with my exotic American accent, I, I learned quite a lot about process and product. Like what? Well, you know, tabloid journalists, when I would interview them, uh, many of them were just saying in a, in a very brash way that they, they're doing the reporting. They have in mind what the audience wants. And oftentimes within the UK tabloid press, that is just surface level um, treatment of these issues. To get into the complexity and nuance within the UK tabloid press doesn't seem like it's within their scope of duties. And so I learned quite a lot about how UK tabloid presses imagine their audiences or how they perceive them and how they then write 
to those particular audiences. As anyone who follows the topic of climate change will know, the coverage has ebbed and flowed in the media quite dramatically over the years. At some points in 2009, coverage seemed to be widespread, and at other points it was like it had disappeared from the press altogether. I asked Max Boykoff what's been behind all these ebbs and flows, because in one sense, climate change is always here, and with our rising emissions, only ever getting more serious. So it really is a combination of the ebbs and flows we attribute to largely political events, scientific events, uh, or scientific reports, cultural events or cultural developments, and then lastly, ecological or meteorological. And I can give you all sorts of examples of each one, but just to maybe think about this a little bit more concretely, when certain uh, incidents, events, political uh, pronouncements are made, this definitely increases coverage around the world. So for example, the cultural event around the encyclical with the Pope has garnered a great deal of coverage within the U.S. press, but also all around the world. Big assessment report coming out garners a great deal of coverage. In the political realm, negotiations around these issues generates a considerable amount of coverage. And then finally, ecological and meteorological, while there are debates about the extent to which certain disaster events can be linked to climate change, when they are linked in the mass media, that actually is a component. Right, I see. So there's a heat wave, there's, an, there's a, sort of an excuse to write about climate change. Exactly. So a heat wave stretching across Europe, for example, is a news hook to then garner coverage. So really looking across those four dimensions. The thing I found most interesting is, you know, I, I felt personally like that just the sense back in like 2006 with Al Gore's movie in 2007, there seemed to be a lot of momentum with climate change that sort of then disappeared. And then around 2012, I, you know, the past few years until more recently, it, it seemed no one was talking about it more or less. And that's pretty well correlated by the number of articles that it was mentioned in, in looking at the graph you and your team ha have put together. Were you surprised in those years in 2012, like after after the Copenhagen meeting, how low climate change coverage got? Um, yeah, I think the short answer is yes. Uh, you know, as somebody who follows this, examines it, interrogates it on a regular basis, I think there are so many different fascinating elements of these stories that I'm surprised that it doesn't garner more coverage in and of itself. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, in this political economy, in the larger context, in limited time to deadline, limited ability of journalists to cover these issues in the ways that they deserve them, I ought not be surprised uh, that from that high point in 2009, there'd really been this drop off, but there had been a lot of attention sucked away from these climate issues and reporting on them because of the global financial meltdown, because of a variety of other issues. And so coverage in outlets around the world had gone down tremendously from that period of time. But a lot of continued uh, fascinating work was going on. So the ways in which we hope that that ongoing monitoring effort makes a contribution is that it helps structure a conversation and helps then uh, folks get into the intricacies of how and why did coverage diminish from that high point in 2009 and how and why might it uh, go up in 2015. I was curious just for you, I mean, as someone who works on this issue so much, are there any most common mistakes or irksome qualities in how climate change is framed when you when you read your, your morning newspaper or you read articles on the website that, that uh, stick in your craw? Yeah, there always are. 
I mean, I guess I could just look to my news consumption just since I woke up this morning, for example. You know, that with China, Brazil, South Korea joining in other countries, about up to 40 now, with their intended uh, emissions reductions heading into the Paris negotiations at the end of this calendar year, there was a switch from discouragement to one of forced optimism that's, that's garnered a lot of the headlines and a lot of the accounts. And it's that kind of whiplash journalism, that quick movement from pessimism to optimism that was irksome at times, that this is part of a long, arduous, and sustained set of commitments going forward. And for the media to then be treating it like a sporting event as absolutely wonderful and there's no hope is sometimes frustrating for me to, to see and read. Um, also, ways in which uh, certain contrarian perspectives pervade news accounts of climate change. So some of the contrarians, for example, hold particularly high offices within uh, U.S. Congress. So, for example, James Inhofe, who's chair of the Senate Committee on Environment uh, and Public Works, he continues to speak out and saying that climate change is the greatest hoax perpetrated on the American people. He throws snowballs on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Now, you know, I've done actually a lot of work looking at how contrarian perspectives pervade news accounts on these issues. Mapping on power and influence, it seems quite logical that, that James Inhofe has a say about these issues. But nonetheless, um, over-reliance and sort of an inordinate amplified uh, attention paid to contrarian perspectives, particularly on the science of climate change, is, is unhelpful. So when I see those in news accounts, I find that to be particularly frustrating as well. Right. I guess conflating his, his position of power with, with credibility on his views on the issue. That's right. We're also going into a presidential season in America. And one of the interesting things is it's gone from something that uh, George H.W. Bush admitted there was climate change. And now it seems all the Republican presidential candidates, more or less, uh, almost all of them deny climate change or deny that humans have something to do with it or deny that uh, we can do anything about it. Do you have any thoughts on how journalists should deal with this contradiction when they're writing about their views on climate change, uh, how they should contextualize them? Yes. Well, the answer is embedded in your question right there, that putting them into context is one of the most fundamental and one of the most important um, takeaways from all of this, is that when reporting on their views, it's also very important to always be putting this into context as to where, say, one's view on human contributions to climate change sits within or, or uh, contrasted with the larger scientific community. So it is a crowded Republican field. Over a dozen candidates have now declared. And as they're moving forward, there will be uh, a great deal of coverage of their positions. But they are often out of step with the larger scientific community. So as they get reported, putting that into context is tremendously important going forward. Well, to end off, as we were mentioning, how the media treats climate change is so important with how we in the public have a, a sense of what can be done about the issue in terms of mobilizing action on the issue? I guess moving forward, how can media coverage be improved? Yeah, that is a big question. Um, it's one that I've written a book about, one that I've definitely been pursuing here now for, for quite a while. There are many ways from very small, just reforms of, of introducing context to every story to larger restructuring of news organizations uh, that can be done. 
But then in a different tact, there are ways in which many folks nowadays can grab the means of production in ways that were not available to them in the past. And so to create new stories, to creatively retell, recast, reframe these issues around climate change are wonderful opportunities to be able to change the discussions and change the the scope of potential feasible actions on climate change. And for that, I, I find some encouragement and certainly some optimism that uh, some ways in which these stories are being retold are opportunities and are very encouraging going forward. Well, Max Boykoff, thanks so much for joining me today. It's, it's been a pleasure talking to you. All right. Well, thank you very much. And that was Max Boykoff, professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Finally, as you may remember, in our first episode, we spoke with renowned climate scientist Michael Mann. In part of that interview, which we didn't get the chance to air, I asked him how, as a climate scientist, he thought the media overall has done in covering the climate change topic. It was just a short excerpt, but I found it interesting. Here's that conversation. Now, I would be interested to hear your your thoughts on the media's role in all of this, because, of course, you know, there are vested interests who have a big stake in ensuring that that major action on climate change isn't taken. But of course, uh, without it coming through the media that there is some sort of debate or that this is a, a big area of uncertainty, it wouldn't really do much, much damage. Um, how, how would you characterize how the, the media has done it in covering climate change? That's a great question. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a media expert, um, but I, I have quite a bit of experience um, dealing with, with journalists and media outlets, and I, I can reflect on those experiences. Uh, by and large, I've found in, uh, science and environmental uh, reporters, journalists, to be excellent. Um, they they gen- tend to know their stuff, they do their homework, and, and they want to make sure that they use the, the leverage that they have as journalists to try to inform the discourse. So I, I think in general, uh, you know, and there are some exceptions, there's some questionable media outlets that seem almost uh, wholly devoted to purveying misinformation when it comes to climate change. By and large, the, the reporters, the journalists in the area of science and environmental reporting, I, I think have done a really good job, um, but they face an uphill battle. First of all, there are fewer and fewer, at least here in the U.S., uh, science and environmental reporters, uh, because uh, news outlets have been uh, laying off specialist journalists in in droves um, over the past decade or so. Uh, there have been massive layoffs um, in environmental science uh, reporting. Uh, the New York Times got rid of their environment desk um, a year ago. The, uh, the CNN, the cable uh, network, got rid of their entire science and environment team more than a decade ago. Um, And you see this continual dissipation of science and environmental journalism. um, And and that's dangerous because it means that the sorts of stories that in the past would have been covered by journalists who uh, sort of have the background to litigate the conflicts and the disagreements, that increasingly those stories are covered, you know, by journalists without any knowledge or expertise in science who are simply going to, in many situations, default to uh, the so-called uh, you know, false objectivity of balance, um, where they just present both sides in an issue because they don't have the tools necessarily to figure out which side um, is right and which is wrong. And that's really dangerous um, when you're dealing with matters uh, of science, uh, where there really are objective truths. And you, know, you wouldn't put somebody from the flat Earth Society up against 
um, you know, a NASA astronaut when talking about the latest developments in space science. And yet effectively, that's what ends up happening in many cases with the coverage of um, environmental science and climate change in particular. Um, and, you know, the, finally, the toxic environment, the, uh, the special interests that have been polluting that environment. Uh, I, I don't think that we can wholly dissociate that from some of the problems in media coverage as well. Uh, the fact is that while I think the journalists in general are doing an excellent job, journalists have to deal with editors, they have to deal with management, and management is certainly feeling pressure from corporate sponsors. And there are many examples. Uh, in fact, I think um, you know there's overwhelming evidence that that has started to degrade the quality of, of science environmental journalism, um, editors demanding, for example, that uh, a journalist go back and insert a contrarian voice in the article because there isn't enough quote-unquote balance in the article. Um, and doing that, perhaps, you know, feeling the pressure of, you know, where they're getting their advertising dollars. I don't know how many articles on climate change, when, that when I view them online, um, uh, come with a advertising banner from the American Petroleum Institute <laughs> or Exxon Mobil uh, or the natural gas industry. And, you know, that seems like a conflict of interest. Um, if media outlets are deriving their livelihood from fossil fuel interest advertising, there is likely to be some implicit pressure on them to not cover these issues in a way that's going to anger their advertisers. In fact, I think there are many examples of where you know stories have been uh, diluted because of complaints from uh, fossil fuel industry advertisers. Um, they can always take their money elsewhere, and that's one way for them to exert pressure on media outlets to frame stories in the way that they would like to see, rather than framing them in the objective way that the public deserves. So I, I do think there's some serious problems in the media coverage. I, in general, don't fault the journalists and um, environmental science journalists especially. I, I think the problem is much larger, and I think that the journalists themselves are, are victims of this very tough environment that we now find ourselves in when it comes to media coverage of this issue. It reminds me of the that piece from John Oliver's show. I don't know if you've seen it. Where <laughs> yes. they have what what an objective debate on climate change would look like. It's uh, you know John, John Oliver and and Colbert, who's you know unfortunately we no longer have the Colbert show. But um you know I think it, it's ironic in some sense that the Comedy Channel has done more to inform <laughs> the discourse in our in modern culture over climate change than any other journalistic outlet that I can think of. And that was climate scientist Michael Mann, whose full interview you can hear in our first episode. And that's all for The Elephant this week. This episode was made possible with funding from the CKAA, a European society of entrepreneurs, scientists, students, professionals, and policy officers working to create a climate-resilient society. Find out more at ckaa.eu. The Elephant is put together by myself, Kevin Kaners, with Patrick Chadwick, and executive producer Matthias Gutz. And thanks this week to Christina Peters, Joe Murray, and Evan Perkins. You can find The Elephant online. We're at elephantpodcast.org. And there we'll be posting my extended conversation with Alan Rusbridger, as there was a lot of interesting material that we couldn't fit into this episode. If you have any comments, you can get in touch with me through email. I'm at kevin at elephantpodcast.org. And if you like the show, consider writing us a review in iTunes or help us spread the word by telling a friend. 
It would help us and who knows, maybe even help the climate. I'm Kevin Kaners. I'll see you in two weeks time.